0: The ball exploded out of one of the cannons with a boom in a burst of flame and smoke. As it sailed through the air, Gilliman saw where it was headed. He quickly stepped in front of the panel so Kate and Al couldn't watch. The sickening thud and screams made Gilliman shut his eyes and wince. The little Marquis father is no more. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. With your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe Seven.com. Today, we dive into Chapter 33 of The Voice, The Revolution, and the Key, entitled The Little Marquis. The little what? Well, Max, one of our three co-hosts whom I haven't introduced yet. Well, you have, no. <laughs> uh-huh. Greetings, lads and lasses. No. Who were you saying be entitled? No one. I said the chapter is entitled. The li... Pardon me, old chap, but by the use of the word entitled, are you implying that this chapter is somehow privileged above all other chapters? Not at all, Uh, Nigel, yet another one of our co-hosts who has yet to be properly introduced. I say don't fret, old boy. While being properly introduced would indeed be a rather considerate gesture, it's hardly necessary, as by now our audience and I are well acquainted, but... uh, well, then, uh, good show, old boy. Yes, a good show, old boy, is what I'm attempting to bring. And when I said that the chapter is entitled, I simply meant...
1: That it has a title, which you were about to tell us, no?
0: Ah, Liz, the third of our trio of co-hosts who have yet to be introduced properly.
1: Oui, monsieur. I believe you have beaten this proverbial huss into submission.
0: Aye, and we're getting tired of hearing about it, too. Indeed. Uh, now... To regain the momentum that has been dashed aside, as I recall something that, at this point, seems hours ago, I believe this chapter has a name, what?
1: Oui, what is the name of this chapter? Oh, it's called The Little Marquee. I? you mean like the big sign at the movie theater? The what? The movie theater. The front of the building has a big sign telling the title of the movie, and they call it a big marquee.
0: So then, it would stand to reason that today's chapter is about a tiny little movie sign. I- is that what you're suggesting? You know, sometimes I wonder why I even bother. No, Nigel, this is about a little marquee. Uh, Liz, surely you know what I mean. Do not
1: call me Shirley, s'il vous plaît. I, I wasn't, but it's it's just like that word. It's like, s'il vous plaît, it's, it's, it's French. Marquis is a French word. Ah, oh, je comprends. Le Marquis de Lafayette. Oui. Oui? Oh, he's just a wee Marquis? Wee. Oui. I mean, yes, yeah, yes, he's a he's a wee Marquis. So today we're
0: learning about a little Marquis. Well, finally. <laughs> you certainly did your best to muddy these waters, old chap. All I said was the chapter is entitled The
1: Little Marquis. This, since Marquis be a French word, can you tell us what it means then? Oui, a Marquis is a person of nobility... Higher rankings than an earl, but not as high as a duke. A marquis was generally a person of wealth and privilege, like Lafayette, who, as we are about to see, lived in a castle, or Chateau de Givognac. Gesundheit! So,
0: what you're seeing is... That our wee little marquis, though just a toddler at the time, lived in a twenty-room castle in the south of France in the lap of luxury, and is already carrying the title Marquis without having lifted a finger. Yes, he was born with a proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. <laughs> He's lucky he didn't choke on it, then. It's just an expression, Max.
1: Oui. In other words, he was born into this wealthy family.
0: And thus enjoyed all the benefits thereof. In short, you could say he was, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, entitled.
1: There it be. Today is chapter B about the entitled Little Marquis.
0: No, it's entitled The Little Marquis.
1: Aren't that what I just said? No, The
0: Little Marquis is what the chapter is entitled. Uh, So we're back to the chapter itself being
1: somehow privileged, is that it? No, it just comes with a title. So you are saying this chapter is of nobility? I say, what makes this chapter so special? No, it's it's not special. All the chapters have titles. Well, not either for them.
0: chapters think they're so special. Look, I'm just going to go into the booth and
1: read the chapter. Whether it's special or not. Uh, That is a good idea, monsieur. (laughs) Oh, it is so much fun to get him all flustered, no?
0: (laughs) Indeed, and so easy. (laughs) Aye, shooting fish in a barrel, then.
1: (laughs) All yours, lad.
0: Part 3. Despair not the tragic. Chapter 33 The Little Marquis August 1st,
1: 1759 Where's here
0: now? Al asked.
1: Or should I say when? Nowhere yet, but ye can open your eyes now, Al.
0: Kate said, prying the orange cat's paws away from his eyes. Al's paws moved from his eyes to pat down the rest of his body. He wore a goofy grin as he looked over and saw Gilliman and Clarie there to meet them in the I-Amosphere. "'Welcome, Al,' Gilliman's white goatee blew in the swirling breeze of this epic time portal. He smiled and lowered his gaze to Al. "'Never fear. You are still in one piece.' "'It never hurts to make sure, lad,' Al answered with a broad smile. Clarie shook her head and giggled. Welcome to the next phase of your mission, Kate. You'll be heading to the south of France.
1: This will be grand,
0: Kate said happily, wagging her tail.
1: But I think it's funny that Liz the French kitty be watching over a Scottish lad, and me the Scottish dog will be watching over a French lad. I know Liz wishes she could go with me.
0: Well, she will be there, in a way, Clary replied, sharing a knowing grin with Gilliman who tapped a panel from their mission 1,700 years earlier. Al, you're here to learn about your human for a future mission. That's good, because I already knew about me past ones, Al answered, looking up and pointing at the swirling panels of history. There's one, no. The scene of the Roman centurion Julius Antonius in Gaul came into view. He was standing on the dock in Arles. "'welcoming his mother, Bella, and young nephew, Leonidas. "'They had sailed from Rome, "'bringing with them all their worldly possessions, "'including the statue of Libertas. "'Al ran along the dock with the young boy, "'seeking out a basket of
1: fish. "'That's when we went to live in Miliz's homeland of France. "'But it were called Gaul then,' Kate added. "'Why are we seeing this panel again? "'You showed it when we first started this mission.' "'Something about the Libertas connection?'
0: "'Correct, Kate. "'Follow the Libertas statue, and you will understand the connection,' "'Gilliman replied. "'He tapped another panel, "'showing an aerial view of a fortress-like French castle "'dating from the 14th century. "'It was framed by two rounded stone towers "'and surrounded by a moat and exquisite gardens. "'This is Chateau de Chavignac "'in the Auvergne region of southern France.' and it was here, in this rugged area of volcanic mountains, that the ancient Gauls made their defiant last stand against Julius Caesar in 52 BC. The mighty Roman army defeated them, however, and Gaul naturally became one of Rome's provinces. Over the centuries, Gaul became France, and the Latin spoken by the Roman conquerors blossomed into the Romance language of French.
1: The humans always be way behind us animals
0: in figuring things out, Al remarked with a definitive nod. Liz were
1: already speak in French when I met her on the way to the Ark. And like we Scots-Irish be best friends with the French, it may take a while for the humans to catch up in how to get along,
0: Kate added with a grin.
1: So who be me human in France?
0: Gilliman zoomed in on the panel to the open window in the corner tower of the chateau. The sounds of a newborn baby filled the room. A young mother cradled him while lying in a beautiful bed canopied with red and white twill fabric. An elegant older woman smiled and wiped back the sweaty, dark strands of hair from her daughter's face while her other daughter saw to the needs of her sister and newborn nephew. Kate, this baby boy is your human. Born September sixth, seventeen fifty-seven, and baptized as the Very High and Very Mighty Lord Monseigneur Marie Joseph Paulivs Roche Gilbert de Montier Lafayette, legitimate son of the Very High and Very Mighty Lord Monsignor Michel Louis Christophe Roche Gilbert de Montier, Marquis de Lafayette, Baron de Visec, Lord of Saint Roman and other places and of the very high and very mighty lady, Madame Marie-Louise Julie de la Rivière.
1: Sure, try to
0: say that fast five times, challenged Al, shaking his paws after trying to count all those names on his toes.
1: That sure be a lot of names for such a wee one,
0: Kate marveled, studying the beautiful baby's cherub-like face. His Catholic mother wanted to include the name of every saint who might protect him in battle, warfare, is part of being a Lafayette. Clary explained. You can call him Gilbert or simply Lafayette. His father was born in this very same room.
1: Gilbert Lafayette, Kate said. I love the little Marquis already. It looks like there's lots of rooms in his father's chateau.
0: Chavaniac has twenty rooms, and you'll soon be walking around them, Clary answered with a smile. And
1: around the gardens as well, of course. There are many surprises in store for you. The wee lads surrounded by lassies, but where's his father?
0: Al wondered. Gilliman frowned and tapped on another panel, showing a tall, 25-year-old French grenadier colonel preparing for battle. Here he is. Gilbert's father has been away at war since before the baby was born. Such has been the legacy of this military family. "'Many Lafayettes have sired sons before going off to war, never to return.' "'The Lafayettes come from a long line of knights. "'While they have only been tracing their family history since the year 1000, "'we, of course, know their lineage back to ancient times,' Clary added, sharing a knowing look with Gilliman. "'Indeed, the Lafayettes have chronicled their gallant history "'of fighting and dying for France,' Stretching back to the year 1,000, lectured Gilliman, the halls of Chavagnac are lined with portraits and armor from ancestors who fought in the Crusades and with Joan of Arc. The young Marquis's maternal great-grandfather commanded the Musketeers du Hoi, or the King's Musketeers.
1: Musketeers? Mousy should try out to be one of them, Al suggested. He'd be a natural. Musketeer,
0: Al. Clary corrected him, a member of the king's personal guard of
1: infantrymen.
0: The young marquis's paternal great-grandfather was awarded the hereditary title of Marquis for military service to the king of France, which indicated he was a nobleman. Gilliman explained, As the next Marquis de Lafayette, Gilbert will grow up hearing his family's tales of war and glory. He will also experience the sorrow that has been part of that legacy, including the loss of a father, he will never know. Kate's eyes filled with anguish.
1: Oh, the dear boy won't ever get to meet his own father?
0: Gilliman pointed to the battle scene in front of them. Today, the next casualty of war in the Lafayette legacy will happen at the Battle of Minden in Prussia. More than 40,000 British, Hanoverian, Hessian and Prussian soldiers are fighting more than 50,000 French and Saxon soldiers today, and Gilbert's father is in the middle of the action.
1: I'm sad for the lad, mourned Al with flattened ears. All that fightin' in America came over to Europe, just like you said it would. It's all the king talks about lately.
0: Gilliman pointed to another scene of George Washington leading his Virginia militia to the final successful capture of Fort Duquesne under General Forbes in 1758. The French were finally driven from the Ohio back to Canada, and Washington had then returned home to Mount Vernon to marry Martha Dandridge Custis. For now, Colonel Washington would lay down his sword and pick up his plowshare. Yes, the war started by George Washington in the line of duty has become a world war. Sadly, it will take the life of Gilbert's father today.
1: Can't we jump in there and protect him before that happens?
0: Kate pleaded. Not this time, Clary answered softly. We are not allowed to intervene. All the days numbered for him are complete. But know that the Maker will bring good from this tragedy for the little Marquis and for the coming new nation, Gilliman foretold watching young George Washington riding his horse through his fields at Mount Vernon. Gilbert will not always be fatherless. Neither will America. Kate and Al take note of three other young men at the Battle of Minden, as this one battle will connect their histories with George Washington and the Marquis de Lafayette, Clary told them, pointing to the scene. You see that boy running across the field, dodging bullets?
1: Aye, he can't be more than fifteen,
0: Kate said. Patrick Ferguson is his name. He's a brand-new cornet with the Royal North British Dragoons, famously known as the Scots Greys. That means he is the lowest grade of commissioned officer in this British cavalry troop, Gilliman explained. He's from the same village in Scotland as John and David Henry, and, like Patrick Henry, he loves his gun. Kate looked up at Gilliman.
1: Aberdeenshire? Does David Henry know him? Uh,
0: perhaps the families know each other, but more importantly, this man will someday know him, Gilliman said, pointing to a twenty one year old British soldier. That ensign in the elite brigade of foot guards is named Charles Cornwallis. Some day he will connect all these men we show you here today. Al, you will be specifically assigned to Cornwallis at a future date. Al cocked his head and looked at the young soldier.
1: I wonder what he'll be doing out there in the future. He's just a young lad, no? They all are,
0: Kate pointed out, watching young men falling to their deaths on the battlefield. And this, Gilliman said before pausing to point to a 28-year-old British captain, is Captain William Phillips. The officer was shouting orders to soldiers manning the battery of eight cannons of the British Royal Artillery. They followed a precise drill to ready the cannons for firing. Gilliman frowned as Captain Phillips raised his hand, ready to give the command. On the other side of the field, in the French position, Colonel Lafayette's commander suddenly fell to enemy fire. Lafayette immediately stepped up to take his place, although he was dangerously exposed to the enemy. He shouted orders for the men to take cover. Captain Phillips rapidly dropped his hand and shouted, Fire! The ball exploded out of one of the cannons with a boom in a burst of flame and smoke. As it sailed through the air, Gilliman saw where it was headed. He quickly stepped in front of the panel so Kate and Al couldn't watch. The sickening thud and screams made Gilliman shut his eyes and wince. Kate's eyes brimmed with tears, and Al's paws went to his mouth in horror. Clarie looked down and sadly shook her head.
1: Lafayette? Is he?
0: Kate asked, haltingly. Gilliman nodded with a mournful expression. The little marquis's father is no more.
1: <laughs> then I must get to him,
0: Kate said tearfully. Chavagnac, France The hot summer sun shone bright over the gardens of Chateau de Chavagnac. Kate ducked under the shade of a rose bush to get her bearings before she made her presence known. Clary told her she would find the little marquis outside. Kate could hear the birds in the trees and the distant sounds of a cart rolling down the cobbled narrow streets of the tiny village below. The Lafayette chateau was perched high on a hill, overlooking the provincial town, visible to the stone houses clustered together below. To the simple village peasants with modest gardens bearing one fruit tree and a single goat or sheep, the Lafayettes were viewed as glamorous aristocrats living in their moat-surrounded chateau with sprawling gardens. But to the lavish, wealthy courtiers sitting in the ornate salons of Paris, and the Royal Halls of Versailles, 300 miles north, the Lafayettes were viewed as provincial country bumpkins. The Lafayettes were appreciated for their loyal military service to the throne, of course, but lacked the social graces acquired only by mingling with French royalty. Gilliman explained that Lafayette's mother, Julie, would soon leave him in the care of her mother, Madame de Chevagnac, and unwed sister. In her grief, the young mother would seek an escape from sorrow by fleeing to the gaiety of Paris. She would rarely return home, entrusting the rearing of her son to the Lafayette women she left behind. So the little Marquis was orphaned by his parents from the beginning. But such was the typical life for many European children of nobility, who were born from arranged marriages and raised by nurses and tutors. The boys were sent off to military school and the girls were married off at a young age. They may not have been his parents, but the little Marquis would be raised by his grandmother and aunt who loved him dearly. Lafayette's grandmother was beloved by the peasants in the village below for her kindness and generosity. She allowed them to hunt on her grounds to feed their families and to use any extra game to earn income at the local market. Madame de Chavagnac was sought out by the heads of other villages so they could consult her for her wisdom. Kate breathed in the lovely fragrance of the roses and listened. She heard the sound of a fountain and the giggles of a child. That must be him. She stepped out onto the open garden path and followed the sounds of water and laughter until she came across a beautiful scene. The little marquis was barefoot and dressed in a long white shirt, His gorgeous red curls bounced as he splashed his small hands in the flowing fountain. He had large blue eyes, a fair complexion, and round, rosy cheeks. His grandmother and aunt sat on a bench and clapped as little Gilbert entertained them with his water play.
1: "'Why, he's a wee angel,'
0: Kate said with her bright smile upon seeing the unusually handsome child for the first time. He exuded joy as he played vigorously in the fountain."
1: He's a happy lad. Time for me to meet the little Marquis.
0: Kate stepped out and wagged her tail as she trotted up to the toddler. She sat down next to him, and instantly he spread out his arms, squatted down, and enveloped her in a smothering hug.
1: Quen mea! Un chien!
0: He exclaimed at seeing the little white dog. He made the sweetest sound as he rested his head on her soft fur. Madame de Chavagnac looked at the dog and then at her daughter with surprise. Where did this dog come from? She walked over to Kate, who looked up at her with her irresistibly sweet face. Gilbert softly petted her back, speaking tender words of affection to the little dog in a lyrical voice.
1: Bonjour, petite chen. Bonjour, petite chen.
0: Madame smiled as Kate gently licked her hand. Gilbert hugged Kate again, and his grandmother's heart immediately melted to see the love he instantly had for the little dog. She looked around to see if perhaps one of the villagers had come on the grounds with the dog, but no one was around.
1: Perhaps she came from the village,
0: Madeline, the boy's aunt, asked, squatting down next to them to meet Kate.
1: I do not know,
0: Madame answered,
1: but I am sure Gilbert wishes to keep her. We will keep her until someone comes looking for her.
0: Just then Gilbert's beautiful mother, Julie, came walking outside and saw the happy commotion going on. She smiled and joined the ladies in petting Kate.
1: Who is this Gilbert?
0: Mine! Gilbert replied, hugging Kate again. Julie laughed and petted Kate on the head.
1: Bonjour!
0: "'Kate looked Julie in the face "'and wished she could tell the young woman "'how sorry she was for her loss. "'There was no way the Lafayette women "'could know what had just happened this day "'on the bloody battlefield of Menden, "'that the senior Marquis de Lafayette "'had just died and Julie "'was the next Lafayette War widow. "'But when the word did come "'and Julie's smile faded into the despair of grief, "'Kate would be here for the little Marquis. "'Come,
1: petit chien!'
0: shouted Gilbert, running around in circles. He wanted Kate to chase him. She happily did so, and the Lafayette women looked on as Gilbert was swept away with joy. As Gilbert ran away from the fountain, they came to a statue standing there in the middle of the garden. The boy's cherub face lit up with a smile, and he squatted down next to the statue.
1: Voila, petite chien, un chat! Meow!
0: Kate's eyes widened as she looked into the marble face of Liz, staring back at her. She looked up and realized that this was the Libertas statue, the same statue that the Roman family of Antonius had brought to Gaul long ago. This statue had been handed down from generation to generation, having never left the family. Gilbert laughed and ran back to the fountain, looking over his shoulder and calling for Kate to follow. She looked from Libertas to the little Marquis and could not believe what she was seeing. The Lafayette Knights didn't just date back to the Crusades, but back to the Knights of Rome. Gilliman's words echoed in Kate's mind. Follow the Libertas statue and you will understand the connection. The little Marquis would never know his father. But he also would never realize that his distant father was a Roman centurion named Marcus Antonius, whose toddler, Armandus, had run around this statue at the same age chasing Al and laughing with the Son of God.
1: Ah, that was really something how the same statue were there hundreds of years after it was sculpted. And I got to say, Liz, you don't look a day older than when you were posing for it. Well... As immortal time-traveling animals, uh, we, you haven't aged a bit either. Aye. Uh, Do you miss being a model? we It meant hours at a time just sitting still in one position. Something we cats love to do. (laughs) Aye, that be for sure. Uh, But on a more serious note, then, how do you suppose the same statue that you posed for way back in ancient times just happened to be in the wee Marquis' backyard, then? Well, for the answer to that... We take you to the newsroom and another edition of Nigel's News Nuggets.
0: Greetings. Nigel P. Monaco here, poised to unravel the mystery of the Libertas statue, how it could be found by Kate at Chateau de Javarniak, Lafayette's home in 1757, when Liz helped pose for it some 1,700 years prior to that, shortly after the birth of Jesus. Well, the answer here is quite simply put, Jenny L. Cody. Indeed, our illustrious author of the Epic Order of the Seven series of books. You see, first, Jenny puts in countless hours of research to make sure she has all the facts. Then, in those special places where very little is known, she fills in the gaps by asking that all-important question, What if? What if? And... She, with lots of help from the maker himself, then begins to weave these stories together fact and fiction and a bit of fantasy, and voila! The epic stories we've come to know and love. But then she takes it a step further by recalling bits and pieces from the various books and then ties them together for the entire series. For example, the Libertas statue, which includes our own Liz, actually came about in Book Three of this series. The Prophet, The Shepherd, and The Star. Now, as you might guess from that title, much of that book focuses on the birth of Jesus, you know, the the Christmas story, which as this podcast was originally released, we were heading directly into that Christmas season. (laughs) Ho, 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 and all that. And here's what's fascinating. There are books yet to be written by Miss Jenny, but already in the works, which will again make reference to the statue the Marquis de Lafayette, and so many other adventures of the Epic Order of the Seven. All this to say, you can read all these stories for yourself, get caught up into the series, and see how all these elements are woven together by the master weaver herself, Jenny L. Cote. As we always try to mention, you'll find all of the books in her series, at least the ones she's already completed, (laughs) by going to her website, www.epicorderoftheseven.com. That's epicorderoftheseven.com. I say, brilliant! For Nigel's news nuggets, I'm Nigel P. Monaco reporting.
1: Merci, Nigel. Hey, good job, Mosi. and a great introduction to head over to Ginny's corner. And uh, what did he call her? The Master Weaver. uh, But I believe she would defer that title to the maker himself, no? (laughs) Aye, you're right about that. And today, Miss Jenny will illustrate that very point. Uh, Hello, Miss Jenny. Well, hello, Max and Liz. What are you
2: curious about today?
1: We understand there is a very interesting sequence of historical events in this story that, uh, well, would not typically be found in
2: most history books. There's so many neat twists and turns of history of our mistakes, of learning from our mistakes, and how God uses the bad things that happen for good, and how he protects us along the way.
1: Aye. Well, tell us about the connection you found between the Marquis de Lafayette and George Washington.
2: George Washington accidentally set off the French and Indian War, which, as I said, went over to Europe and became the Seven Years' War. Well, in the Battle of Menden in Europe, the Marquis de Lafayette's father was killed when Lafayette was only two years old, and essentially Lafayette became an orphan. So fast forward 20 years,
1: Uh uh-oh, spoiler alert, (laughs) Lafayette
2: comes over to America, and he becomes so close with George Washington that George Washington becomes like his adoptive father because of the smallpox that Washington, had it suffered, he wasn't able to have children, and so Lafayette became like his adopted son.
0: I say, fascinating the way the Maker works all things together for good that way. <laughs> well, and thank you, Miss Jenny. You see, announcer chap, there's still hope for you yet. Oh, thanks, Nigel. Wait, what? Time to wrap
1: things up, lad. So, next time we'll hear Chapter 34. Uh, what was it entitled, then?
0: Oh, <laughs> no you don't. I'm not falling for that. You'll just have to hear it for yourself.
1: But we are the hosts of the podcast.
0: And your co-workers.
1: And some of the main characters in the story, for Pete's sake. Oh, I see.
0: Oh, so does that somehow make you, oh, I don't know, entitled? Well, he's got us there. Uh, Touché. Well played, lad. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi.
1: A bientôt, mes amis.
0: Huzzah! and ta-ta. And always remember, you are loved and you are able.